Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hello and welcome to Oh What A Time, the history podcast that tries to decide if the past was as awful as it seems. I'm Ellis James. And I'm Tom Crane. And I'm Chris Skull. Each week we are looking at a brand new subject. And today we're going to be discussing holidays and recreation. From holidays in ancient Rome to the strange Welsh tradition of a Valley to the history of the fairground before finally the incredible story of package holidays. And thank you so much for your support. Once again, the ratings and reviews have been coming in thick and fast. We thank you for that. Now, we asked you a couple of weeks ago to leave your review in Latin, Tom. And boy, have they done that. Yes, they have. Oh, sorry. Rex, <laughs> have they done that? No, that's not right. What is boy hard <laughs> I'm at the very limit of my Latin. The, the vast majority are in English, but some have done it in Latin. And I love them all. Whatever language they are, as long as they've got five star attached... I love them. Um, shall I, do you fancy another little uh, Latin test? Shall I read one out? Oh, yes, please. Here's a nice simple one. It's simply ego ver frundum est. The three of them have got massive egos. Avoid. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> <laughs> and that's from my mother. <laughs> yeah. It's very cruel. But to be fair, she's, she's a good judge of character. <laughs> Oh, yeah, she's spot on there with, her, with that character assessment slash assassination. No, that is simply, I really enjoyed it. And that's from Chris. Oh, Thank you very much. Lovely. Isn't that nice? That's very lovely. sweet. Lovely, lovely. Um, if you do uh, want to leave us a review, it really does have a huge impact on the show. There's another way you can get in contact, isn't there, Ellis? Yes, but I'm not going to tell you. That would be too boring. I'm going to ask uh, uh, Olivier-winning actor David Bradley to tell you. From the films. All right, you horrible lot. Here's how you can stay in touch with the show. You can email us at hello at ohwhatatime.com and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ohwhatatimepod. Now, clear off. So, well, let, let's before we sort of plunge into this and holidays in the past, let's talk about holidays now. We're all parents. What... Is a holiday now a holiday for you? How are we feeling about holidays at this point in our life? We we didn't take Stefan, my son, abroad until he was four. We went to Portugal this year. Um, so we, because I just said, listen, holidays are hard and uh, I, I just cannot be bothered to travel too far. We, were, we went to really boring places. We went to Berkhamstead. Um, yeah. Berkhamstead, just because we didn't, have a, we didn't have a flat with a garden in lockdown. So we we just we just hired a slightly better house than the one we lived in and went there for a week and then came back. <laughs> and I thought, such is my lack of ambition. I'm going to Berkhamstead on holiday. So today we are going to be talking about uh, holidays, holy days, sort of feast days and celebration in general. And I should say, because if that might sound a little bit vague, 
holidays as we now know them, i.e. going to Berkhamsted to uh, hire an, an Airbnb that's slightly nicer than your house for a week before going back to your house that you don't like anymore because it's been locked and you don't have a garden. It, the sort of holidays that we all recognise, it's quite a modern invention because for tourism to thrive, you need a certain degree of political and economic stability. So the, um, I suppose they're halcyon days, aren't they, of, of Pax Romana, um, which is roughly 30 BC to AD 200. That was the longest unbroken period of peace that Europe has ever managed. So after that, there was just loads and loads of warfare. So going on holiday to Berkhamsted or Camberley, which is just within the M25 and a great commuter town, that kind of thing, <laughs> it, 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 became, it became much more difficult. So we'll be talking about uh, things like package holidays a little bit later. I am going to be talking about... Uh, fairgrounds and the experience of leisure and people having breaks and the uh, the kind of the growing popularity of the fairground and all the weirdness therein. Uh, Chris, what are you going to be talking about? And then I will be talking about package holidays. I'm absolutely. I really wanted to talk about this, and I've got some really interesting stuff. I've always wondered how they came about, and you're about to find out. But firstly, Ellis, I'm going to be quite wide ranging. I'm going to be talking about uh, pagan festivals. Uh, early Roman holidays, uh, and also the kind of celebrations that they used to have on the continent. Okay, so tourism in ancient Rome. Now, one thing I found absolutely fascinating is that uh, the way uh, they went on holiday in ancient Rome. It, it quite closely resembles the way we go on holiday today. So across the entire Mediterranean world, you have this quite elaborate tourist infrastructure which anticipated our contemporary version and it had emerged to cater for the Romans' distinctive needs. So they stayed at roadside inns, they complained about hard mattresses and bad service, <laughs> they ate at dubious restaurants, they got drunk in smoke-filled taverns and they wrote poems about their hangovers, which is... Which is quite recognisable, isn't it? I mean, I've never written yeah, a poem yeah. about my hangover. I've certainly sent a sort of brutally lurid and descriptive WhatsApp about my hangover, but I've never, I've never actually, I've, I've never been moved to write a poem about it. Now, the, the, the parallels between that or what they were doing and non-tourism can be quite striking. So, clustering around these growing tourist attractions, you had hordes of professional tour guides called Mr Goggy, those who show sacred places to foreigners. Now the thing, and and they, they would pay good money for a good floor show, so you would crowd-pleasing Egyptian priests keeping crocodiles in a pond, and at scheduled times you'd, they would feed them morsels of flesh, squirt wine into their mouths, and then they would hand-polish their sharp teeth. <laughs> I mean, say what you want about SeaWorld, but at least the animals aren't pissed. <laughs> Do you reckon as well? A pissed crocodile. Do you reckon, can you then have a crocodile alcoholic like waking up thinking, God, I need a drink, man. I can't wait. I can't wait for the squirting session to start again. <laughs> the one thing worse than a, a crocodile would be a really hungover crocodile. Yeah, grumpy. Like they're, grou- they're, as a, they're grouchy enough. And then a bit like TripAdvisor, there'd be reviews. Many of the ancient travel experiences echo down the ages. So one Roman traveller's comment about the locals of Alexandria... They worship only one god there, cash. You're like, oh, yes. <laughs> it's like, this sounds exactly like Benador. It, it, that's exactly what I thought. It's I so thought, true. Hang on, I've, I've been here. I think, I think, I, I think I've been on, uh, on holiday in ancient Rome. I wonder if the, if the ancient Romans were doing 
what I do whenever I'm in a museum on holiday and I think midway round, why am I in a museum? <laughs> I, I live in a city with museums and I never go to any of them. Why am I now in Venice in a museum when I could just be doing anything else, drinking wine and eating food? <laughs> Yes. Do you not yeah. get that? There's a, there's an obligation, I think, sometimes on holidays where you feel you have to sort of make use of it in the way that you should. Oh, I need to fill this day with these cultural sort of things. I wonder if that was the case then, but that's definitely what I'm like now. Especially with kids. And you're like, listen, you are going you are gonna to walk up this belfry and you are going to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, and then part of you thinks, hang on, no one enjoys a belfry. <laughs> what, what, what the kids like was the slides in the swimming pool. We should just be there. This belfry is a waste of time. Well, as you all know, on my stag do to Bruges, uh, Josh Widdicombe, my best man, had booked a trip for us all to go up the belfry in Bruges yeah. to look over the skyline. We got to the bottom of the belfry. There was a little bit of a queue, and everyone was like, let's just not bother. <laughs> <laughs> that was, like, the one thing that had been booked in the day, and it just fell to pieces. Um, yeah. So you'd have certain dates of the year. Holy days would coincide with significant celebratory feasts or wakes, some of which have pagan ancestries, others are Christian inventions. And... This just reminded me of a Welsh tradition, which uh, we studied at school called uh, the Mary Lloyd, a Mary Lloyd in Welsh. And it was a wassailing folk custom found in South Wales. So the tradition would entail use of a hobby horse, which was made from a horse's skull mounted on a pole and carried by an individual hidden under a sackcloth. Right. So it first started in the early 1800s, I think. That's the first uh, recording of it. Um and it was a tradition performed around Christmas time by groups of men who would accompany the horse on his travels around the local area. And although the makeup of the groups would vary, they typically included an individual to carry the horse, a leader, and individuals dressed as stock characters such as Punch and Judy. Now I'm going to stop you there. Has anyone ever found Punch and Judy funny? Oh, God. It is awful. <laughs> rubbish. So bad. So rubbish. And a bit scary. <laughs> Too violent. <laughs> It is too violent. Have you ever been to... I'm sure in Covent Garden, there's a plaque in Covent Garden from where Samuel Pepys went to watch a Punch and Judy show. And oh, really? I wondered, was that show any good? But also, has there ever been a Punch and Judy show that was just mind-blowing? That just was really, <laughs> you know? It was like, like, brought tears to your eyes. Like Hamilton, yeah. you've got to see this. Well, you know, you know, you know, Succession was in, it was initially a Punch and Judy show, <laughs> and then it was moved from the Punch and Judy uh, stall on onto TV. Well, well, the men, the men would carry the money to local houses. They'd request entry through song. The householders. So just would to quickly, be... just to quickly catch up. So there's a, a, a horse's, horse's skull, skull on, a pole on a pole with a drape across it. And yeah, lots of yeah. people are, are dressed up as uh, fools and all these sort of things, and they're following this dead horse. Yeah. So the householders okay. would be expected to deny them entry again through song. Understandably. And the two sides would continue their responses to one another in this manner. So I'm guessing you'd be like, <laughs> will you let me in? No, I won't. I'd quite like you to sod off, actually. <laughs> and also, have you seen my horse? I haven't seen my horse in the last... <laughs> I had a horse until yesterday afternoon. <laughs> it is that. I recognise that skull. Um, if the householders eventually relented, the team would be permitted entry and given food and drinks. The married Lloyd itself consisted of a horse's skull that was decorated with ribbons and affixed to a pole. The back of the skull is attached to a white sheet which drapes down to conceal both the pole and the individual carrying this device. Terrific. 
In some instances, the horse's jaw was able to open and close as a result oh. of a string or lever attached to it. Can I ask you a question about that? Because you mention, just more, it's not a historical question, more your point of view on this. It says it sometimes people would relent. I, I think you're right. I can't see a point where I relent and let them in. Even when it's ruining the game and everyone's sat out on the street going, come on, you're the last house, you've got to let us in. I'd be yeah, like, you're not and, coming in. And you've, run out of, and you've run out of verses. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. You're not, I know, I, I'm aware you've all gathered, and this is a big celebration, but you're, you're, you're not coming in. With the, I with think the they'd wear horse. you down. They'd wear you down. But your neighbours, there's no escape. You can't escape from your neighbours. Like, year round, you'll be the guy who didn't open the door to the dead horse's head. Yes. Yeah, that's how you be the miserable old sod who hasn't opened his door yeah. to the horse's head that's covered in ribbons. You also know that they're going to do that and not that. You said that the mouth moves. They're going to, at a point, they're going to start pretending to be the horse, pleading, Oh, come on, please, <laughs> moving the mouth of the horse. And everyone's like laughing and I'm still going, No, you're not coming in. <laughs> I don't want to let a horse's skull into my house. All right, my son has trouble sleeping. We've just got him down. I guess the, the difficult thing is now, like if you're trying to almost trying to invent a new holiday, it's like you're going up against Christmas, Easter, yeah, gr- great holidays with bank, the, you know, with bank holidays. Ones. Great traditions now bedded in that everyone buys into. You can't be turning up with a dead horse's head on a stick, going, "What about this one?" I've got this new one. Who's up yeah. for it? <laughs> no well, one is. I, I say new one. It's actually very, very yes. old-fashioned. <laughs> I'm trying to bring it back. I was having a really nice pub lunch once in Dorset. And then there was a lot of noise and everyone started to become very excited. And I looked out the window and there were Morris dances in the car park. <laughs> I thought, come on, lads. <laughs> it's 2014. <laughs> Give it up. <laughs> it's never going to be big again. <laughs> it's, it's over. It's over. It is over. I always think like the Maypole. We've got this is in. We've got PlayStation Five now. I don't even know what number we were on. You're, the Maypole is competing with a play, FIFA. You know, yeah. guys. Well, you know, but you know, the biggest the biggest game on the PlayStation Five is a country dancing game. You know that. <laughs> it's massive. It's really big. It's bigger than FIFA oh, and virtual virtual Morris dancing. You put you, the do, you get you get a stick. It's like you, it can tell when you're moving it in your front room. It's really very 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 clever. Actually, you should. <laughs> I just want to go back on Punch and Judy. I, I talked earlier about the plaque that's in Covent Garden. It actually it commemorates the one that Samuel Pepys saw was the first ever Punch and Judy show in England in 1662, oh. and it's featured oh. in his diary. It's the first one ever, and that makes me realise 1662 was the first Punch and Judy show. I saw it 330 years later. Still shit. Yeah, exactly. I guarantee you, when that ended, Samuel Pepys went, "Well, that'll never catch on." <laughs> <laughs> That's the last we see of that. (laughs) So I'm going to talk to you about leisure and more specifically about fun fairs and travelling shows, okay? Was there a fun fair rumour when you were at school that someone got flung out of the spinning thing and was found like a mile away in a tree. Was that a thing that went? <laughs> the was that one of those things like razor blades in the uh, in the water slide? At the like, I, I've always wondered if that actually happened at the fun fair near me, or if that's just something people 
said everywhere in the country. I've never heard that. Razor blades in <coughs> um, in the swimming pool and down the yeah. slide. I used to hear that all the time about uh, Swansea Leisure Centre. The fairground ride I used to hear was that the dodgems were so fast. Uh, one poor boy, there was there was a, there was dog mess in the dodgem, and he uh, he put his foot down, and the dodgem went so fast that the, the dog mess flew into his face. That's what <laughs> Which is just the most, fundamentally that's the most disgusting story I've ever. Heard. It's also completely clearly untrue, <laughs> <laughs> and I can't believe I believed it. So, give you a bit of background: in the 18th century, basically fairs were just oh, trade environments. That's what they were for. And then in the 19th century, they sort of started to shift a bit more towards entertainment, which kind of reflected political and economic change at the time for three main reasons. First of all, the French Revolution came sort of like an ideology of sort of secular freedom and enjoying yourself in that way. Um, secondly, the Industrial Revolution dragged people to cities and sort of new forms of mass entertainment came along. And then thirdly, they also seem to kind of basically reflect the progress of the Industrial Revolution, sort of the great strides that were being made there. And people love this idea of um, riding on things and invention and pleasure and stuff that was modern. It kind of basically wrapped up, it came wrapped up in this idea of what modern life was at that point, and people just flocked to them with excitement. So all of which sort of led to the funfairs that we see today. And before the modern funfair, there were some really, really weird attractions which people used to flock to to enjoy. And I'm going to take you through some of these, okay? Going back to 1817, one of the biggest attractions in England, uh, it was huge, huge, people loved it, was um, Toby the Sapient Pig. <laughs> now, Toby was considered the most famous of the learned pigs of his era. <laughs> Was he like those animals that claim they can uh, predict World Cup results? <laughs> Literally, yeah. <laughs> Paul the octopus. Well, would you look, try and guess? There are, I think there's five things that this pig could do. Would you not try to try and tick them off? What do you think they might be? Basic maths. Yeah. Base, yeah, sort of. Okay. Could Keep it going. count somehow? Uh, these are all sort of right areas, but they're more specific. I, I think it that. would, I think one of the things would be it would wear a hat. Like a <laughs> university, you know, it's going to dress. It's something about the way it looks has to be. I would say any pig can wear a hat. You just can't put it on. <laughs> Surely you can just put a hat on a pig. But that would be part of, of the, the, the part of the mystery. He would come out from his <laughs> abode with the hat on, and then talk about its book deal. Well, Ellis, you don't know how close you are. So the things that Toby could supposedly do were he could play cards, <laughs> he could read, he could tell the time from a pocket watch, and he could guess a person's age, and he was also, his big trick, he could discover a person's thoughts. So it's cleverer than most of the humans in my life. <laughs> cleverer than most of my friends. So those are the things he did, but you talk about his book deal... After the success of this, well, people flocked to see him. He then even apparently wrote his own autobiography, which was one of the big selling books at the time, called The Life and Adventures of Toby the Sapient Pig, with his opinions on men and matters. And then it says, written by himself, as well as written underneath. You could technically sort of, I reckon you could shove a pen into the slot between two cloven hooves. There might be a way you could get a pen in there, but... This book was hugely popular, written by this. Pig. Oh, so he's not using a typewriter in your imagination. He's he's physically writing it out, 
A typewriter would make way more sense. No, the hoof is too big to hit the individual key, so it has no, to be No, you have a, a giant... He's always not got a normal human-sized key, but he's got a massive pig-sized one for his trotters. Okay. Like, like the piano in Big. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, if you're interested where this skill came from, um, good old Toby is good enough to explain in his autobiography... In the book, the pig writes about where his talent come from, came from, saying, My mother, in the early stages of her pregnancy, unwittingly entered a gentleman's flower garden where she came obliquely to the entrance of his library. And she entered and in a short time cast her eye over numerous volumes it contained. Such was her haste, she disordered some, while others she minutely perused, nay, absolutely bereaved of their leaves, chewing and swallowing them all. So great was her, her avidity. So the story is her mum, his mum, sorry, ate loads of books when she was, when she was pregnant. <laughs> That's why he's such a bright them. pig. If, if only <laughs> it was that easy. If knowledge could be gained by eating books, I would genuinely consider it. That's what my uh, very irate dad used to say when I didn't revise, when I wasn't revising for my GCSEs and A-levels. He would go, mm. you revised it up there. And I'd say no. And he'd go... If you could inject the knowledge, that would be fine, but you can't, so you need to do some reading. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. Now, are you familiar with the fairground uh, attraction, which is known as a boxing booth? Have yes. A boxing booth? Yes, absolutely. I know a little bit about boxing booths. No, I don't know. What's that? So, aside from animals and rides, this was the big draw in fairgrounds yep. for, for a long popular. time as well, actually. So, in their heyday... Um, which kind of, and they actually existed up until about the 1970s in a very, you know, not, not there weren't many of them around at that point, but they were around for, for centuries before that. In their heyday, basically each region of the country would have something called a boxing booth, where, and they'd travel around the circuit with boxers fighting for championships at both a regional and national level. For example, in the West Country, uh, Jack and Alice Gratton travelled uh, Gratton's boxing show with their son, who was known as One Round Gratton who was a legend from Paul de Penzance because he always knocked out his opponents in the first round. So, yeah. But what was particular about these things is that local hard men, if you thought you, yeah. had, you were hard, you had the opportunity to go three rounds and win a pound, is what it was described. So you would go into this booth in front of other people in the fairground and you'd have to try and fight these trained boxers to try and win money. But also, but it, but it, it didn't matter how big they were or how small the boxing booth boxer was. So... South Wales has got a fantastic record for producing world boxing champions, but they tend to be in the in the smaller weights, you know, like flyweight. So Jimmy Wilde, who was a Welsh boxer, the Tigers Town Terror, the ghost with a hammer in his hand. Uh, he was born in Quaker's Yard near Merthyr Tydfil, and he was only five foot two. Right now, five wow. foot two is for a bloke is is small. That is that's really small. He would he would be fighting like local farmers, who would weigh two hundred pounds. Yeah, and that's where he learned to box at the age of 16. So he might not have even been five foot two at the age of 16. I don't know if he'd reached his full adult height by then. Kept getting punched on the top of the head. He was five foot six. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd, they'd fight, that's right. They'd fight whoever turned up. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so, loads you know, of fight in a day. So have you heard of this chap called Billy Wood? Have you heard of him? So Billy no. Wood was a fighter in Dumfries who recalled setting up the ring at the Durham Miners Gala in 1990. 1919, sorry, said the booth opened at 7am and closed at 1 o'clock the following morning. And during that time, Wood fought 18 colliers, knocking out 15 of them. And can you imagine how hard a collier would be? Absolutely. Working all day at the pit face. 
And see, you're fighting the the local hard blokes, but not once. Fifteen to you'd be absolutely shattered by the end. I think I'll have to fact check this. So if I get this wrong, uh, please by all means uh, let us know. Um, I think that if you lost a fight, you weren't paid. Oh. But yeah, a lot of the Welsh boxers who came of age at the turn of the 20th century had learned their trade in boxing booths. Yeah, fascinating things. Wow. However, there is a kind of a rosy end to this story as I wrap this up. England is, in a way, indebted to these uh, boxing fights uh, because in a fairground boxing ring in 1930, a young pitman from Northumberland uh, managed to win his three rounds, okay? And he used his pound to then buy a wedding ring for the girl that he loved. And his name was Robert Charlton and his bride-to-be with Cassie. And his two of his sons were called Bobby and Jack. And then fast forward to 1966. There you go. So it wasn't for this money that he won to buy the wedding ring, <clears throat> which then led to him having children. There's an argument England wouldn't have won the World Cup in 1966. It's probably quite a loose argument. No, no, I'd say that argument. charming just... in it. Yeah, that's lovely. Exactly. So his father did that. His father fought and won in one of those places. And it Markable. just goes to show how hard, how like the genetically hard the Charlton brothers must have been. Yeah. Yeah. I will say this. I went to see the UFC at the O2, and it was the first big fighting for a championship event that I'd ever seen. I've seen boxing, but never for a world championship. And the exhilaration, the thrill of it, two men going at it, there was something incredibly carnal about it. It was one of the best things I've ever done. Like The, the crowd was so partisan, you get caught up in it. And ultimately, with fighting, you know, it can, it's not like football where a team could go 2-0 up and you're kind of confident they're going to win because with fighting, it could end at any moment. Yeah. And as a sporting spectacle, it was exhilarating. It was so good. So I, yeah. I really sympathise with it. I understand why boxing moves made so much money. I... You, 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 you'd watch bare-knuckle fighting on the yeah. hillside. <laughs> at <laughs> six in the morning. Well, you're going to go to the cheese rolling and watch this. <laughs> Chris, is, you're, Chris is pro the idea of a horseshoe within the glove as well, aren't you? You're kind of <laughs> absolutely backing it, making it as violent as possible. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see, so... No, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. All right, lads. Let's jump in our time machine. I'm taking you back to the 5th of July, 1841, at Leicester Railway Station. There's a train on the way to Loughborough. 500 people are about to board it. The trip has been organised by a Mr. Thomas Cook. That. That will hopefully sound familiar. These 500 people to Loughborough are going on the first ever package holiday. Thomas Cook, a go-getting businessman, has seen a gap in the market for what would become package excursions using the railway network. Soon he branched out into longer excursion tours that were to include Europe, the Middle East and the United States. To add to the tourist experience, he produced travel guides, issued coupon books redeemable at authorised hotels, cafes and restaurants and established fixed exchange rates using an early form of travellers checks. By the 1870s, it was possible to book a round-the-world tour. 
in 1870. Wow. <laughs> I really do think travel broadens the mind, and I think there's holidays, they're fantastic things, a break from the day-to-day. But in 1870, there is no way in hell I'm going on a round-the-world tour because yeah. you're going to die. It Like, malaria will finish you off. There's a thousand things. Snakes. There's no infrastructure. Do you need yeah. to see... I don't need to see the world that bad in 1870. I don't think, as a personality, I'm intrepid enough. I think I think some people do genuinely thrive and they absolutely love the idea of branching into the unknown and going somewhere completely different. Whereas I've most of the holidays I've been on, I've fairly comfortably sort of Western. Like, I've never really roughed it. I mean, not that you would have had many home comforts if you were poor and Welsh anyway, but I, I would have been thinking to myself, are they going to have tea bags there? Are they gonna... <laughs> I think that now. Are they going to have toast in Mozambique? I don't know, I've never been before. I can't Google it. The internet's 190 years away. <laughs> also, it, it would have taken so long the round the world trip. It really is like, when you've, as soon as you've left your home, you're, really, you're not seeing that for a long time. Oh. <sighs> It must yeah. take an age. You're all, it's by boat, isn't it? It's by boat and then whatever train or something, I guess, when you're on the land. But most of it's going to be boat. There's no flying at that point. 100%. So you're going to be gone for months, aren't you? But yeah, that's quite exciting, isn't it? There must be. There's, <laughs> there is something to be said for that point of history in travel where people really didn't know. They were going yeah, to yeah. completely new places in a way that now, we, you know, everything's filtered into our homes through magazines and TV and, you know, document. You, you've, you've basically seen everything before you get there. Obviously, I'm sure the, the yeah. wonder of being on safari is it's far more dramatic than watching it on uh, on iPlayer. But, but, you know, you're still slightly prepared for it in a way that I imagine at that point it would be just completely just mind-blowing. Travel must be mind-blowing about that. I'm always surprised when people say, oh, it's one of my life ambitions to go on a safari. It's like, have you been to a zoo? <laughs> you know? I've seen a lion. I don't think that. I'm not sure that holds up. I don't need to see that lion in its natural setting. <laughs> Why go, not? I've seen. I've seen a giraffe. I've seen all these things. I just. I don't need to go to Kenya. I just think if the famous naturalist Steve Irwin can die, when he's out in the wild, if all all of the stuff <laughs> that he knew about wild animals, and he, and, he, and it still goes wrong for him. If I go on a safari. I'm going to be eating crisps at the wrong minute, at the wrong second, and suddenly um, I've had my arm ripped off by a... Why did I go for beef flavour? <laughs> that was such a schoolboy error. I'm... Just to go back to the beginning of your thing there, Chris, so Loughborough was his first place, and then yes. he expanded. I got this image of his estate agent with three clocks on the wall. <laughs> Lough, Loughborough, Paris, and New York. <laughs> All right, let me tell you more about uh, Thomas Cook, right? So Thomas Cook's model of prepackaged excursions and tourism was adopted, mimicked, developed by others, railway companies and those operating the Grand Ocean Liners across the Atlantic, all the way through to football supporters clubs who had to fill away the away stands on a Saturday afternoon. So some of the first package holidays included the FA Cup final. That was a particular focus. So supporters wow. coming into London from Huddersfield, Manchester, Cardiff, Birmingham, the railway made it all possible. And the excursion holiday became a part of everyday life for the middle classes. The phenomenon of the British package holiday was here. 
on August Bank Holiday 1914, 50,000 people travelled to Barry Island just before the outbreak of the First World War. On August Bank Holiday 1914, across the, uh, across the Bristol Channel in Western Supermare, 25,000 people that same day. On a bank holiday in 1938, talking of Barry Island, quarter of a million people went to Barry Island. Now, Barry Island has always been popular. Can you can you imagine quarter of a million people? The queue for ice creams. The queue for chips. The local newspaper Riley commented that the bather who found more than a square yard of sand or pebbles upon which to deposit his or her clothes was unusually lucky. And there's pictures of Barry Island. And it's it is nuts. absolutely yeah. crazy. It is like Glastonbury or something like that. It is completely mobbed. I find that panic-inducing. <laughs> lived in Cardiff, and I was doing my uh, history MA, if you need uh, further proof of my qualifications <laughs> uh, for this podcast. Um, and it was, it was rumoured that it was going to be the hottest day on record in the UK, um, in South Wales. So I thought, you know, I'm not going to be able to do much work. So I, was doing what, I lived in one of those horrendous student houses that was... Um, uninhabitably cold in the winter and uninhabitably <laughs> hot in the summer. So it was fine in March and September. But other than that, it was unpleasant. It just depended on which way it was going to be unpleasant. So my friend said, why do we all go to Barry Island? But you're right, laugh. The problem was everyone in Wales had the same idea and it was standing room only on the beach. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what, what's, is... the, what's the infrastructure like in Barry Island? Is, is, it a, is there loads of fun things to do? Is there like a promenade? A yeah, there's pier, a, pro- or... is, is it a classic sort of seaside town so there's you know there's arcades there's coffee shops there's chip shops I've been I loved it stuff. great yeah I mean I, I wouldn't say it could cope with a quarter of a million people <laughs> yeah yeah it was just so insanely busy and then the let train on the way back it was like commuters you know it was nose to nose let me ask you a question so you're heading towards uh, Barry Island is that 1933 is that right 38 yeah. was when the quarter of a million 38 and you're you're getting off the train, you're walking, you're going, oh my, it's a quarter of a million people on that beach. Are you then going onto the beach or are you going, well, this obviously isn't what we're going to do with our well, day the, anymore? The problem is you've gone to Barry Island to go to the beach. So you're yes. locked in. Okay, yeah, I yeah, think yeah, you yeah, have yeah. to go. Imagine the disappointment on your ch- children's face as you go, we've come all the way to Barry Island. Right, let's get in the arcade. You don't want to be the sea side of the beach, if that makes sense, as it's starting to fill up. <laughs> And you're getting shoved into the into yeah. the sea. Tides coming in, <laughs> further and yeah. further away from the uh, ice cream van that sells all the price bottles of water. You're thinking, this is I've thought this through. <laughs> the key, the, yeah, the key for chips is eight thousand deep. <laughs> we only way we can make this work is if you have one chip each. <laughs> That's the only way we can we can feed everyone. All right, well, in the 50s and 60s, I think the British seaside seemed to reach something of a golden age. And I certainly feel like this. I love seeing pictures of British people on holiday in the 50s and 60s in these seaside towns. So what happened is councils began to open municipal caravan parks to capitalise on the appeal in Landa, in Clandudno. That's my oh, pronunciation. Yeah. We're never so strong. <laughs> Yeah, in, in North Wales coast, 200,000 holiday makers were accommodated in July and August, with half a million day trippers visiting in the same period. That's incredible. Um, and then in the interwar years, saw the start of the holiday camp craze. 
as associated most famously with businessmen Billy Butlin and Harry Warner. Fred Pontin joined them after the Second World War. Isn't it funny that Thomas Cook, Billy Butlin, Fred Pontin, all these names... No, it doesn't feel real, doesn't it? They're, they're actual real people who made yeah, this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Billy Butlin. That's such a great name. That's fantastic. Yeah. Sort of Beano character. The first Butlins was opened at Skegness in 1936. The aim was to provide customers with cheap but complete holiday holiday packages. No more kind of... Basil Fawlty style hoteliers, you know, rip you off, be rude to you. At Butlins, the idea was you had a chalet to yourself, complete with electric lights, running water. You'd get your three meals a day in the dining hall, lovely little club rooms, recreation rooms. You'd have billiards, table tennis, cards, lounging sea and sand on one side, the coast on the other. And then there was also physical kind of instruction, free boating, free bathing, golf, tennis, bowls, orchestral music, and all of it part of one cohesive package. It was so popular that Butlins opened their second uh, holiday camp, Clacton-on-Sea, in 1938, and plenty more followed after the war, including Ireland and Barry Island in the 1960s. So I actually went on holiday to... I was actually in a Butlins when I met my first ever celebrity. Oh. We used to go Butlins quite a lot. And I, mm-hmm. I was called up on stage once to meet Cheryl Baker. <laughs> so the Rasmus, the glitz and glamour of Butlins <laughs> continued well on into my lifetime. Of course, they pr- produced a whole generation of Saturday Night ITV talent, didn't they, in the Redcoats? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Shane, Shane Ritchie. I nearly said Shane McGowan then. That would have been good. <laughs> <laughs> Shane McGowan is a Redcoat. <laughs> I would like to have seen that. <laughs> what's, what's he doing? Is, it, is is that singing? <laughs> it would be terrible for eleven months of the year, but then come Christmas. Oh my when god! He, when yeah. he does a live performance of Fairy Tale in New York, people are going, "This is why we book him." <laughs> yeah, this is why we let we don't sack him the eleven months of the year. He's this drunk is- on the job. Good stuff. The manager, a single tear going down his cheek, going, this is why I kept him on. I knew it was the right decision. <laughs> what you're about to witness over the next three and a half minutes makes the last 11 and a half months <laughs> worth it. Do you want some Billy Butlin facts? Yeah. I've got some great Billy Butlin facts. I went down a Billy Butlin rabbit hole. He was married three times. On his second marriage in 1959, he was surprised... On his wedding day, by Eamon Andrews for his episode of This Is Your Life. Oh my God. On his wedding day. So intense. <laughs> the priest pulls, pulls off the beard. It's Eamon Andrews. Oh my this God. This is Billy Butlin. This is your life. Well, and then they had to go and do the TV show there and then. Yeah, he had to go and do the TV show the night of his wedding day. No. So. Scrap the reception, bin the volivants. Please, please, please tell me the bride had turned up. <laughs> it wasn't so mortifying. He was just waiting at the end of the aisle on his own. She's not turned up. And then suddenly, but his not second now. marriage was to the niece of his first wife. Oh dear! And his second marriage lasted mere months after Eamon Andrews filmed that episode of This Is Your Life. Oh dear! And Billy Butlin's gravestone is in the shape of a double bed. <laughs> I wouldn't say that is the most iconic <laughs> element of a Butlin's resort, is it? <laughs> Who did that? Do you mean the whole thing's like it's like a size of a double bed so you can lie down on it? Or do no, you mean just like, like it's just like a normal headstone? Like, okay. Yeah. 
double what bed. What an odd thing to do. Do it like a chalet. That's in the shape of a gravestone. Yeah. With a little window on it or something. So you can see the open casket. <laughs> you can watch yeah, open the door. You can watch it decom- watch him decompose. <laughs> so of course, the end of the kind of end of British tourism. Well, it's not the end, obviously. We've just established Margate's fantastic. But in the 1950s, as relations between Britain and Spain improved, having been soured by the Spanish Civil War in the 30s, the summer resorts of the Mediterranean, the, Bale- the Balearics, the, Co- the Costas, the mm. su- south of France, all of these began, all these areas began to market themselves to the British tourists. Tour operators reassured customers that hotels and boarding houses were carefully chosen to suit British ideas about food and hygiene. That essentially, a trip abroad was not an adventure. Chips are going to be on the menu. <laughs> Only Fools and Horses is going to be on the telly. It was a big deal, though, because obviously most people hadn't been abroad. Mm. So when it when it when it started to become affordable for normal people, it was a it was a massive thing. Um, going abroad, I think. I don't know when my parents... I think my mum and dad went to Cyprus in 1980. I think that might have been one of the first times that they went abroad. And then they didn't go abroad again for another 12 years. They just talked about <laughs> Cyprus all the time. It's such, a, <laughs> such an incredible time. <laughs> oh, I had Seabus in Cyprus 11 years ago. But, uh, yeah, now obviously it's, it's so common. So the problem the British resorts faced in the 50s and 60s was that package holiday traffic was one way. Continental holidaymakers did not book to come to Skegness or Barry Island anymore. Uh. Eventually, cheaper intercontinental air travel made more distant package holidays possible, including the eastern Mediterranean, uh, such as Dubrovnik and Beirut, and then eventually the United States, Canada, and, of course, Asia. It wasn't until the age of the staycation returned that British holiday destinations were to boom once more. So out of the three options from today's show, which are you going for? Um, I've got to be honest, the pagan stuff, not really down with that. Uh, The Feast of Fools, etc. It all sounds rubbish. Uh, How the Romans did it sounds pretty good, but really I want the security of a 1960s package holiday. Yeah. Um, Even more than I like what I know, I know what I like. What about? Well, can I just remind you that you have the option of visiting a learned pig as well in uh, 16th yeah. century? Or, uh, yeah, 16th century. England. Can I can go I on not? holiday with the learned pig? <laughs> can the Can the learned pig book my holiday? <laughs> Will he get me the best deal? The learned pig sounds like something smug that uh, Jacobs Rees-Mogg would say in Parliament, wouldn't it? It's oh, kind of, yes. Will the learned pig please sit down? Will I complete what? Yeah. Will I yes. <laughs> it sounds like Heston Blumenthal's new restaurant. Have you been to the learned pig? It's got five Michelin stars. So you go package holiday rather than uh, watching yes. a pig pretend to read. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Chips and beans, only for and horses. Yeah. I mean, that just sounds genuinely good. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you as well. There's only one winner here, isn't there? It's a uh, yeah. package holiday. Oh, all loads day. of breakfast. All day long. Oh, God, it's <sighs> making me hungry for a fry-up. <laughs> yeah, it is, actually. <laughs> go all done this week thank you so much for your support once again if you enjoyed the episode why not give us a rating and a review if you leave it in latin and you leave five stars there's a high chance it will get read out next week give us a five star review mister that's so uh that's a, a, a cockney paper by would have asked for in 1920 
Give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, mister. We missed that. I would absolutely listen to that podcast, by the way. Yeah, From a Cockney paper boy who lived in Victorian Britain. Oh, my Also, God. he'd be he'd be across the news as well, because he's canning out the papers. Yes. Every, he'd, be, he'd be topical. Yeah. It would be historical. It's also got... So it's nice to hear, the, the, you know, the views of youth as well. That's so he'd, great. He'd be the most informed paper boy. It'd be incredible. <laughs> Give us a five-star review, mister. When I was in... Um, I was in Prague when West Ham got to the final of a European competition. Yes, it actually oh, here we happened. Go. And I was wearing a official West Ham United merch in my capacity as a host of the Fan Zone. And a, a young fan came up to me and went, Oi, mister, can I have your hoodie? <laughs> and I was like, Oi, mister, who talks yes. like that? I said, Where's yeah. this kid been like, transported from Victorian Britain? <laughs> I was watching uh, the, the Arsenal Stadium mystery. Have you seen this film? No, no. It's a great film set at Highbury where Arsenal used to play, uh, made in 1939. It's got the team um, and it's got the manager in it as well. Uh, as well as a lot of quite famous British actors from the day, and there's a there's a bit where um, uh, the team are winning, and a little sort of paperboy style character. I think he might be a bellboy at Highbury. Says, "Excuse me, sir, what's the score?" And somebody goes, "Well, the Arsenal are winning one 0 And he goes, "Oh, yippee!" <laughs> and he runs away. <laughs> I'd love to know if anyone has ever said the word yippee, <laughs> sort of unironically. Well, I, st- I still use the phrase to spend a penny. I have quite a lot of these sort of old arca- archaic turns of phrase. So if anyone's like, I can see myself letting a yippee slip out. Yeah, at, at I a party see. And then uh, just having to leave immediately. <laughs> Being so embarrassed. I sell my giddy aunt and whoopsie daisy as well. I say buy jingo. Is- That's my other thing, buy jingo. <laughs> I will answer the phone with ahoy ahoy, which is apparently how Alexander Graham Bell answered the first phone call. Oh wow! Oh wow! Okay, nice. Okay, well, that's never good. Cool that. Someone told me that once, and it's stuck. Well, it's it's very uh, pressing that you say that because we know that we've got some very very clever, very learned listeners on this podcast. If we've ever made a historical uh, cock up, if there've been any gaffes, if any little mistakes have slipped the net, please let us know on hello at owatertime.com because we will do a clarification section uh, in uh, future podcasts. So we're we're, we're building up a collection of clangers and then we'll read them out and, um, yeah, and apologise, obviously, because for crying out loud, there's enough misinformation in the world. As it is, we, we we don't want to be adding to it. And all we want for, all we want from this podcast is for it to be perfect. So <laughs> that is that's all we hope for. Um, and equally, if there's anything within the subjects we've talked about that you think we've missed out on, we should have talked. If there's any crazy facts that you think we should have picked up on, send those over as well, and we can check that out. And if they're right, having run them past a historian, we might read them out. <laughs> all right, that that's it for this week. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.